Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, buckle in for an update on how two marketers, BMW and Origin Energy, and their agency partner, Atomic212, are grappling with the eye-popping challenges and change coming at them and us, all of us, really, for 2022. Yes, no surprise, BMW and Origin are rewiring for faster, more flexible planning and executions this year, if you can plan at all, which for, I'd imagine, a German car manufacturer sounds like sacrilege, but it does put more pressure down the supply chain to agencies, media owners and publishers. More pressure is certainly on the books for media, but with it comes some interesting opportunities. To counter the end of third-party cookies, BMW and Origin are aligned on applying more focus and resource to creative and contextual media environments. That means very different conversations with publishers and, wait for it, a likely return to old-world marketing principles. Surely not. But to that point, both Origin and BMW are developing new segmentation strategies with the team at Atomic that rely less on who the user might be in digital environments, and they're figuring out measurement and attribution post-cookies. We'll also hear how their thinking is developing on brand versus performance and what Atomic 212's team is thinking there too. That bit's pretty interesting. On top of all that, we'll dabble in and around the talent crisis. So enough from me. Let's get into it. With us today is BMW. As I mentioned, BMW's new GM for marketing, Alex McLean. Sarah Vanell, who leads digital marketing and innovation at Origin and has taken on a broader media remit. Rory Heffernan, Atomic's recently appointed Group Managing Director at Atomic 212. Asia Carrazzo, Atomic's new Head of Strategy. And Sarah O'Leary, Head of Client Service, who moved from Melbourne to Sydney recently to take on the role. Lots of action happening there. But welcome to you all. To Alex first, congrats on the new gig. It's probably, what, it's a couple of weeks old now, I think. It's probably the best and worst of times, really, to step into the group marketing role of the car maker. Supply chains are choking and microchips are going the way of the dodo. Have you actually got any cars to sell, Alex? And welcome. Thanks, Paul. And yeah, great to chat you all today. I have to say it's probably a great time to be involved. It's not right. a bad time, particularly when demand uh, is very much above supply. <laughs> It's definitely an interesting time for the automotive sector at the moment, not just with the, I guess, macro environmental factors that are in play, but also, you know, the transition that we're seeing for a lot of environmental automotive OEMs with regards to their approach to selling cars direct to customers for some brands and, and others still very much involved with a very strong dealer network, which is for BMW approach. You know, we are having to review where we need to be short-term orientated with tactical marketing and we can be rather focused on a, on a brand strategy. Marketing is definitely not easy, but it is an interesting time to kick into the gig for sure. Well, it does get us to you know how you are selling and marketing or how you're going to sell and market this year and in the coming couple of years. Obviously, as we've mentioned, there's a lot of macro pressures coming around every sector in and around marketing, how it's done. How much, in your view, Alex, how much of what's been done in marketing over the past five to 10 years is going to unravel? I know that might be a little colorful language from a journal, <laughs> but do you sense that there is quite a sort of a step change, quantum change going on in how marketing is done, at least in auto and probably across the sector, across the profession and discipline, really? I think change that was always coming is just accelerated in the last 24 months. 
you know, a higher focus on leveraging the asset or sweating the data asset is very much now a focus for us from where it was possibly five, 10 years ago, investing in platforms and tools that will enable you to have a greater direct conversation with your buying audience is probably not where, you know, where we focused on five, 10 years ago. So yeah, a change that was coming is just accelerated and that's exciting because for myself, you know, I like to be frugal with my investment where we invest our marketing funds. If I can see a response in, in, through our database, it means that I can, you know, invest above the line spend in, in a greater way to support the brand. And on that, I mean, I think we talked earlier about how there is some sort of macro changes in how the auto sector full stop launches cars and models. You're moving on from, I think, I'll get this right, from a traditional sort of new model, big hit launch strategy. You've got, a, I think you mentioned, you've got a customer database or a database at least of, say, a million or so. What's happening there? How are you going to market? How is the auto sector launching and what are you doing with that customer database? When you launch a car, there's always certain buyers that are really encouraged by the new product. We know that. But we also know that's very much focused on our database of previous buyers and previous owners are very keen on the new product. So your loyalty, if I can use that term, and it is uh, sometimes a dirty term because what is loyalty? But previous owners are very keen with a new product. But that doesn't mean you only sell cars when you launch them. You sell them through the full life cycle, which can be up to seven years. So we only focused on when we launched and moved on. We're really missing out on 95% of the time period for product to market. We also have a considerably sized product portfolio, one series up to eight series, X1 up to X7. We've got roads. We've got a lot of products. And does that demand a, a different strategy for every single one? Is that what is the, the focus from buyers when they're in the market to buying cars? Not necessarily. Their uh, features, their uh, attributes, their uh, brand attributes particularly, which are of greater importance for our buyers, and that's sort of a focus for us to communicate with. So, you know, moving away from traditionally launching and moving to the next and focusing on those attributes. I mean, there's a great, I hate to quote Dolly Parton, but I love the quote <laughs> she has that any a peacock that sits in his feathers is just another turkey. You know, we really want to celebrate what differentiates BMW. And we're going to dig into this a bit deeper further on, but just quick top line on what you're seeing. We talked about how much change is coming at the marketing discipline. In terms of sort of the new data environment you talk about and post-cookie, you are looking at creative and add-in content for advertising and content formats as, as a sort of a, a next stage for BMW and what you do post-cookie and next generation marketing. Is Am I sort of getting that right? I think we want greater performance from when we are displayed. It might not be a high volume of locations. We might have direct associations with the right partners that we believe from a white listening perspective are the right partners that we want to work with for their audiences. But we'll look to have a greater engagement with those different platforms. We'll look to have moving beyond just pure clicks with that engagement. You know, How can we use creativity at a better level to create a higher level of engagement? Okay. And we come back to that one. But Sarah Vanell, welcome origin and energy different sectors completely to auto in some ways is it similar or a different story to you and if we go to the impact that's been on your business from you know the crumbling of third-party cookies or the coming crumbling if we like i think you took me to task on calling it an apocalypse it's overly dramatic paul and i've taken your point i've called it a crumble not an apocalypse but you and your team were initially feeling a little panic about that but not so much now so why and what's different about what you're facing versus what alex has talked about so far yeah, thanks. And it's great to be here. I think, look, really, the initial panic was more around the timeline in which we had. And right. that doesn't really exist anymore. We sort of really quickly realized once we got under the hood of how we actually use cookies, 
there is a lot of sentiment that we don't need to panic and we're putting in place, you know, we have a plan now to sort of plug any of those gaps. But when we think about, you know, the channels that are really important to us and particularly those sort of acquisition channels like search, we don't overly rely on cookies for that channel. We also have some really strong strategic partnerships in place. So REA, for example, we've been working really strongly with them for a long time. And that's really that sort of contextual placement that I think, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk in the industry around the rise of re-emergence of contextual. Yeah, it's right. I think it's the right. It's sort of, for me, it's just going back to context is king and data is super important, but it's not always the be all or end all. Being there in the right place at the right time with the right message is important, which sort of then I guess leads on to the opportunities that I see with cookies as well. So I'll talk about data in a second, but really I think this sort of cookie-less era, it's, I suppose the term I prefer to use to make people panic slightly less, it's really mm. How do we have differentiation in market? We used to talk about, certainly in digital marketing, the differentiation that we could drive was really to get to the customer first, to be able to use data to pinpoint that real moment in time when there was an opportunity and be able to bid more effectively for that person's attention and put our message there. Some of those sentiments are not going to go away, but really in terms of being able to use data in the same way we do at the moment, we want to look at the context and we want to be able to be more clever with our creative. And I think where we can win there is, is being able to differentiate and find ourselves that real sort of opportunity to differentiate with our propositions. And I'm sort of speaking quite generically here, but I think if you look at all of the different sectors, when I look at, you know, on my Optus bill, I can now subscribe to Amazon Net or soon to be Netflix. I can get subscriptions to any number of other sort of streaming services. And so many brands are jumping on that bandwagon. Where's the value in that sort of those propositions and that messaging? And I think that's the challenge and that's the sort of creative as well as product challenge and opportunity that I can really see us having to focus a lot more on so that mm. we can own those customer relations and that being seen as the one to provide value to customers. I think the important thing on data and what I was sort of just digesting actually from Alex's chat is, look, first-party data is always important and will continue and grow, be more important as well. But I think we often talk about it as the email data and being able to email our customers more or SMS our customers more. But actually what's also important is the first-party data we have on behaviours on our website. And for retailers, we have a lot of that. And that's our unique sort of data that we have on customers or right. potential customers. Whereas, you know, we can go and buy a whole load of second party data profiles, but actually that's just giving us a level playing field with our competitors. So it's really, I think, the people that are going to win or the brands that will win in this cookie-less era will have, you know, a number of things consistently in common. And one of those will be that really strong relationship with their digital teams to understand those on-site behaviours, those journeys, where are those opportunities and how can they bring that into other channels. Great. We're going to loop around on a couple of those things, some really interesting points in that. Rory, is what you've heard from Alex and Sarah, is this typical of what you're seeing across your client portfolio? And I think in earlier chats, you're also of the view, perhaps, too much airtime has been spent on the targeting fallout from cookies ending and crumbling and not about the measurement and attribution. So just explain that a little bit for us. But first, you know, what we're hearing here from Alex and Sarah, is this a broad sentiment or are these two super duper, you know, advanced, sophisticated marketers? Obviously, these two are as sophisticated as they come, but and thanks for having us on, Paul. Yes, I think, you know, what Sarah was just saying, for example, about the value exchange. It is 
consistent in some of the conversations where with, that we're having with clients at the moment, particularly around the tech point of view, which links to your second question around targeting versus measurement when it comes to you know, the end of cookies or, or whatever we're calling it at the moment. Yeah, I think a lot of airtime has been given to the targeting ramifications of that, which is fair enough. People are rightly concerned where there's been an over-reliance on third-party or anonymized cookie data, and they're figuring out how they can improve that value exchange with their customers or prospects to grow their opted-in first-party database and the technology that's needed to enable that. So that's completely fair enough, and it definitely is a focus and will continue to be a focus for us and our clients. But yeah, I do think there has been probably not enough conversations around the measurement side of things and that reconciliation of how out-of-the-box kind of cookie-based measurement systems, which are things like analytics or ad servers or multi-touch attribution platforms, how they're going to be reconciled against business results and how you replace that on that kind of daily, hourly reporting cycle that we've all become used to. So this is going to continue to be a challenge and it I think on the plus side is that it will push the industry out of that kind of, I guess, that drug that we've been hooked on, but also kind of, you know, those lazy measurement habits. Which not always provide any value add either. They're just, you know, I think Alex talked about in our earlier conversation that, you know, we measure everything because we can. So some of that measurement that we've already been, you know, hooked to hasn't necessarily delivered anything helpful or beneficial to the business anyway. Would that be fair, Rory? Exactly, yeah. And I think understanding how those platforms work and why that value isn't really there, which is because of the limitations of the way that certain media channels, for example, are measured in those platforms, where data modeling or sampling is currently in play because of the advance of cookie-less environments that has happened over the past three, four, five years you know, understanding all of that and having informed discussions with stakeholders is going to be key in terms of moving beyond it. You know, our clients have been under pressure to achieve certain targets that are based on historical numbers that have been pulled from tools that don't work the same way that they did when those numbers were pulled. And that's primarily due to just a lack of understanding of that internally by the finance team that, that pulled the targets together, but also those numbers increasingly have little alignment to the way that the business reports its bottom line or sales data. And so what are the alternatives? I'm going to ask some of the other panelists about this too, but what are the some of the alternatives you're seeing to the measurement sort of convention that we have now, Rory? Yeah. At Atomic, we're working hard on our predictive media platform, which is essentially a media mix modeling service for our clients. Has it got AI and stuff in it, has it? It's way beyond me, my pay grade. Is that what it does? It's riddled with AI, mate. It's full of it. Okay, right. But on. I guess what gets interesting quickly is when you start undertaking this process, you quickly realize where there's a lack of data or gaps in data that makes it more difficult to build something meaningful. So I think it's about a conversation around defining the business need or what's the problem that you're trying to solve for? Is it a replacement for that kind of digital marketing last touch attribution or is it something else? And then focusing the energy there in terms of gathering the right data and, and making sure we've got the kind of resource in place to develop that. 
Okay. Sarah, at Origin, what Rory's talking about with measurement, have you got alternatives yet or where are you on that sort of path? I think we're on a path and I think we're on the path of really trying to understand what's the best approach and what's going to work for us. I think the thing that's exciting and interesting for me really is looking at, I don't think the big companies have got, your big traditional sort of measurement companies have really got it down pat. They don't have a solution yet. So what are those alternatives and what are those opportunities? And I think the market is ripe for a, you know, for a startup or an innovator to come and step in and really work with brands to try and solve this. The sort of lens that we're thinking about this is really to Rory's point of how can we think about that predictive models or those models that are going to allow us not to replace, but to look at measurement differently that's more closely aligned to the way we measure our business. Just out of interest, you know, in the previous regime with cookies for you at Origin, what were the sort of the biggest areas of measurement or reliance that you were using in the old regime? What were the key metrics that you would sort of have feeding into both your marketing team and further up the food chain inside the organisation? Have you got any tips on that? Yeah, look, I think probably not any different to a lot of retailers in the sense that the metrics that we would use from a sort of campaign measurements perspective is really, you know, it's aligned to the role of the campaign we've got. So we'd look at reach and frequency, which we would feed in. We'd look at interactions. So we have sort of really focused in on that mid funnel and what is an interaction and, you know, everything from that opportunity for people to touch and take an action from our brand activity through to our performance activity. So social likes, comments, shares, traffic to the site, for example. And then really the one that gets measured and talked about the most is the leads and sales. So that sort of conversion data. And I think the challenge that we will have is that we're not able to measure those leads and channels and attribute them in the same way that we do at the moment. Yeah, interesting. Alex, your thoughts on the measurement? When it starts to move into that in-market piece, which for us really is around four weeks, I know you said that no one can get cars right now and they might be waiting six months, but really their moment of I'm in market to I'm committed is around four weeks, which is extremely short, extremely short, right? Again, you know, 98% of our buyers are looking at our or our dealers' websites. So we're really reviewing propensity modeling on our site, starting to understand what are the key buying areas or actions or behaviors. And we monitor that particularly as well. I mean, Cyrus said before, we have our own platforms and what we can monitor in our own backyard is going to be really important for us as well. And that's driving an approach from investment as well. So at the top, share of search, and then in market, monitoring key buying actions on our site to give us an indication as to what's happening. Of course, then test drive form completion, and then in dealership leads and sales, of yeah, course, exactly. is there and, and post-purchase behavior. But they're probably the two at the top that are of key focus for us. Sarah, and your take on this whole measurement impact, you see it right across a client portfolio. What's your observations on that? What Rory was talking about, measurement versus the focus on targeting and what's coming through the pipe from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think from just kind of summing up what both Sarah and Alex have sort of been talking to in the last kind of 20 minutes or so, I think that the we can kind of take a step back from the technical side and actually look at from an agency perspective how that translates from client to our teams. Because I think what Sarah and Alex have both been talking about is you can just sort of see from the two different brands that are in our agency portfolio that there are so many different requirements. There's so many different pieces of the puzzle that fit together from a measurement perspective and that kind of internal business reporting. And so I think one of the biggest challenges from my perspective, from an agency perspective, is how we kind of 
take those issues and translate it back to our teams so that they're actually speaking to business problems. And I think both the guys have really talked about sort of simplifying results. And I just think from a measurement perspective, it's really important to get the basics in place. We need to agree what the measurement is, agree what the source is. When BMW came on board, we did a lot of work around reporting methodology and just making sure that everyone is speaking the same language as much as possible. And were they before or how much alignment was required, Sarah? I think that when you shift from another agency to a new agency, there's always going to be alignment in the way that we approach, I guess, measurement and attribution and sort of just to making sure there's alignment. So definitely a shift. Mm. And I think big part of that piece of work is just to get everybody on the same page. And when there are so many moving parts in this kind of new cookie-less age, as Sarah put it. We're sort of rolling out pieces of education as well with Origin specifically. We're running a bit of a marketing academy where we're upskilling both Origin and Atomic teams on everything that's happening in this kind of space so that we are kind of keeping people up to date and focusing on what actually matters. Does that make sense? Yeah. So just before we move on to the next theme, because per usual, we're going to run out of time here, but is there a North Star or a really standout sort of piece of kit, technology, methodology, alternative that you're seeing yet, or is it still really sort of moving around? I think that there's lots of different examples, but one that I think is really simple and powerful is something that we've worked on with Alex's team on Mini, which is really around a framework for publishers. So just kind of looking at a framework that the team on the Atomic side can really kind of ground themselves in, in terms of where are the audience what are the parameters that many need to fulfill and how do we actually kind of have a starting point for who we're going to work with so that we can have less executions and more engagement, but really kind of setting that framework for the mini brand so the team know kind of how to engage and we can get the best results. So that's been a really nice, simple piece of kind of line in the sand that's worked really well over the last 12 months. Asia, you're welcome. So it's taken a while to get there, but you've got some really interesting thoughts on this flexibility and, you know, strategists are supposed to sort of crystal ball and tell us what's going to happen. Are you still that good? The days of annual planning are probably dead. You know, I used to be the kind of strategist dips in, does the annual plan, you know, gets approved and then, you know, we move on. I think that's over, but that's also brings a lot of opportunities. We're probably closer to the reality of each one of the businesses that we work with and also just allows us to understand what's happening at every point in time bigger needs for research because obviously what you know you thought it was right three months ago is probably not right anymore you know from a consumer behavior perspective even using tools such as like Roy Morgan and so on that are trying to get a little bit better a little bit more to play with the time because you know we get data releases that are for example December 2021 and then we are in Jan but then the things have changed we've seen a lot of change in the last few months as well so I think now we know a little bit more than what we used to know. We started with scenario planning and now the scenarios that we try to plan a little bit more like give more certainty because we know what happens. As Sarah said, if there's lockdowns, we know what happens to media consumption and consumer behavior. So we're playing a little bit less in the dark, even though there is still a lot of uncertainty. So no crystal ball from our end, but I think it's just more about giving different options to our clients and giving them the certainty that whatever happens, we know what we need to do. Sarah, your take on this in terms of the rapid change, and I think you know you talked about the need for publishers and media to you know be more flexible. They've shown that through COVID, but there's more to come. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've really adapted our way of working. I think in terms of publishers and the way that they've sort of had to adapt, you know, outdoor frequency has had to change because mobility has changed. You know, we need to kind of look at people having more connected TVs, higher BVOD consumption. The radio commute isn't the same as it used to be. So there's a lot more sort of diversity in that consumption. And we've worked really closely with publishers to adapt to that. So we've gone from, you know, having even end of financial year with BMW, we had above the line in market. Then Sydney lockdown came in a week or two before the end of financial year. And we had to pivot really quickly and look at digital and kind of move that inventory back. So really kind of, I guess, relying on our strong relationships with publishers to sort of know that we will support them and continue to work with them. But there's always pieces that I guess we can't help when it comes to lockdowns and those changes that are happening in market. Asia, you've got a really interesting view on performance and viewing performance differently in terms of the messaging and how it's done. Give us your top line thoughts there. I was just um, saying the other day, the fact that, you know, we can still use performance channels to build brand. You know, um, I think we need to kind of like step away from that idea of traditional channels are going to be your brand building channels. And I think, you know, when the situation changes or media landscape changes or media consumption changes, you have to readjust. Every brand has still like a brand job to do and we have to do it. So it's really up to us to decide how we want to use those channels. So I think it's more about us dictating what the channel should be doing rather than the channel kind of dominating the media strategy. Because at the end of the day, a channel is a channel and people use it in different ways. So it's more about understanding that. Okay, Rory, do you have a view on what you're seeing across your clients in and around that, you know, the classic, whether it's 70, 30, depending on the sector and brand versus performance, it could be 60, 40 sometimes and whatever. Is there change of foot there in the conversations you're having with clients and where they're going? I think so. I mean, I think we know about the disruptions in the industry and the importance of testing new tactics, channels, audiences, whatever it is within those, you know, established channels like Sarah mentioned, whether that's display or social or search or whatever it is. So absolutely the conversation is changing in terms of where there's over-reliance on something. How can we continue to test, ensure that we've got budget to future-proof ourselves and to be, you know, always, I guess, challenging ourselves and the brands we work with to to get the most out of the the media dollars. I think COVID's an interesting time for that 60, 40, 70, 30, whatever it is discussion. And I think we've seen some interesting examples in real world behavior of how interactions with brands have changed over this time. I guess the importance of brands, you know, there's a reason that if you go to the shop at the moment, Panadol is sold out, but the home brand is still on the shelf. So I think, you know, observing what the shifts in consumer behavior are and responding to that in your media strategy is is important. It's a really great point. I had this very conversation sometime last week where someone had, you're dead right, you go into the pharmacy or the supermarket and the brand's gone. The branded alternatives, at least in sort of, you know, talk about Panadol or painkillers, you're absolutely right. It's the generic brand that's left. And in fact, it was something like, oh, they reminded me, you know, that it's the same product, but we still buy brands. It's a really, really good point, actually. Yeah, it's that kind of branded safety net, I guess. And it comes back to Sarah's point earlier about the importance of, paid search, I guess, or search in general, you know, it's still one of the best ways to understand user intent, whether that's based on how much you're spending in that channel, you absolutely can be over-invested and we work to make sure that 
that our clients aren't over-invested in branded paid search, for example, but you still get that user intent and the data is there from both a paid and organic perspective to understand what people are looking for and the support they need from the brand. So to anyone on the panel, the final question this, and we've got one more theme we're going to cover off around the talent crisis, which will be super interesting. But that scale, is it an arbitrary number today? If we talk about you know, performance can do a brand job, brand channels can do a performance job, and sometimes they can do both. Is it an arbitrary scale, this 70, 30 or 60, 40? Or is there a real practical benefit to following those sort of ratios? Do we believe in the ratios, I guess, is the question. I think it depends on the brand. I think it really depends on what our goals are and how we're structuring. The different channels obviously have different investment levels required. I think 60-40 is probably somewhere in the realm, but I generally think that in this kind of post-COVID environment, brands just really need to be brave and continue to focus on brand because I think that kind of short-term view is a lot easier in the climate that we're in. But I think having that kind of rule of 60-40 or 50-50 even just allows us to kind of be brave and kind of invest in brand. We've got a really great example of that from one of our Sydney clients, Pet Circle, who have just launched a big brand campaign a couple of weeks ago. So Pet Circle are a brand that benefited greatly from COVID. There was a literal shortage of dogs. You know, (laughs) everything's gone online. Everyone's getting pets, you know, kind of... It's all happening and and grew their business massively, but they've gone and launched a brand campaign off the back of a really successful year in COVID. And I think that's just sort of speaking to me that brands just need to be brave. They need to invest. And I think whether it's 670, 30 or 60, 40, there needs to be a balance and investment in brand because as things shift so dramatically and they will continue to shift dramatically over the next couple of years, that brand equity is just so important. So probably doesn't answer the question, but I think it's an interesting No, it's a good observation. Alex, arbitrary number, 60, 40, 70, 30. Do you subscribe to anything? Are you changing your dial? I don't necessarily subscribe to a figure. Are you I'm, off the dial? Uh, I know that uh, for us, the brand plays a longer, slower burn. So naturally, in particular with the channel mix, there is a high spend in that space. So there would be a disproportionately high spend towards brand. Naturally, that's where you, where you land at 60, 70%, right? Got it. Sarah? Yeah, look, I think there's so much theory around what percentage or number it is. I think the really important piece is really having an ongoing brand present and ensuring that's invested. And I think that's paid off for brands over the last couple of years. You know, we've certainly seen it being a big trusted brand. We're reliable. We're there. We're going to look after you in times of uncertainty. Having that long-term brand view in the past has really paid off and it's important that we continue to do that. Final one, which is a fascinating one, talent crisis. Now, Asia, you're being forced to do some pretty unconventional things to find new people from unconventional places. Talk us through very quickly what you've been having to do to find people. Well, for me, it was a very unconventional thing, having in mind that I'm a child of GFC coming from Spain, where we had a lot of very talented people sitting at home, you know, so it was like the other way around. So you get to a post-COVID scenario in Australia and you don't have these very talented people sitting at home because they've either been already poached by other agencies or they're just simply not there. So the way we went about this was we needed to grow the strategy team at Atomic after like a massive year of growth and a lot of demand into like strategy work within the agency. So we had to look inside the agency to find the right people because at the end of the day, you want to have, I hate to say this, well, like cultural fit because it doesn't really mean anything, but it's just like people with that 
curiosity, without a willingness to learn and do new stuff. And we ended up just finding someone within the agency that was an account manager and then was recruited and transformed into a strategist. And I think it was one of the best decisions that I've ever done in 2021, because honestly, the situation is pretty dire there. I think all of us can talk about it because it's been the reality. The market is really tough. So just puts back the importance into making sure that we keep the talent happy, we keep them engaged and we give them opportunities to grow within the business because, yeah, retaining great talent is probably a big priority. How did Sarah O'Leary feel about nicking one of her people, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was my pleasure to go and uh, help the strategy team. Always happy to help. You'll be in the same boat though, Sarah, right? You've got the same sort of dearth. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, kind of talent and team well-being they're so connected more so than ever because I think when you've got kind of vacancies within teams you've got people stretching up and down you've got people moving across you do need to sort of think of different ways to counter these issues that come up Mm. and so promoting from within perfect example we're also rolling out things like grad programs focusing on structured onboarding and some of that boring kind of process stuff so that we can upskill people and then also I think goes hand in hand in that with that is that we've currently got 19 mental health first aid officers because I think having the right conversations helps you deal with the talent crisis and allows you to keep the team kind of ticking along and, and kind of focus on well-being so I think they're all really interconnected. Yeah really interesting. Alex how are you managing we hear a lot of pressure, right, I was on the agencies, but you'd be facing the same thing and interested in your talent crisis or your management of talent, but also what you see on the agency side, supply side, because you hear lots more turmoil on that side, or at least we hear about it. Well, I mean, look, as someone who built their foundations in account management in an agency, I'm more than happy to go and steal account managers from, from the agency <laughs> world and bring them across. You know, there's a confidence in what you know. And, and going back to it, as you said, there's a lot of confidence in who you know internally. And for us, it's really making sure you do manage, guide, lead, support and keep engaged your team that you have. It's the greatest asset that I have right here is the team that you know I have working with me. So it is a challenge. It is a challenge. You know, there's always naturally attrition that comes through. You need to replace people. It is really tough right now. And there's some, I don't want to say horror stories because that's the wrong term. It's definitely a candidate's market from what you're hearing, you know, from the days of where there should be seven interviews and so many checks, blah, 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 to the point now where you're hearing of people being offered the job in their first interview with a bonus attached. So it's a very competitive landscape. And for us, it's about really looking after the team that you have. Hmm. Sarah, you've been hiring. How's your world of trying to find energy marketers? Oh, look, I think it's important, if not just energy marketers, I believe in diversification of people's you know, skill sets and thinking. And I think opening up that sort of mindset helps you look at a broader pool of people. However, I think it is tough. Look, it's tough for everybody. The extra layer of toughness, not the right word. Um, the additional sort of thing that's just brought to mind this morning, actually, when we were having a team meeting is the number of people going on maternity leave and mat leave and needing to, mat and paternity leave, needing to replace them as short-term cover, I think is going to come across. It's not just the full-time ones. So these are the COVID babies that are having a business impact. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, we're very supportive of paternity as well as maternity leave. So it's it's across the whole team. Gosh, what do you do? A couple of things. We might look at externally, but we also have a really great secondment program where we look more broadly, not just okay. within marketing, but across the team. And we have a marketing future marketers program as well which sort of encourages and keeps people continuously engaged who are interested in in our discipline right 
And then I think it's just, you know, Alex mentioned it as well. It's the keeping people engaged, keeping them feeling supportive, not feeling either overwhelmed or overstretched, making sure we're focusing on the right things, what's going to bring value to the customers, bring value to the business or strategic value. And then those of us that work directly with our part agency and creative partners, how do we support them when they're struggling mm-hmm. with, you know, they are an extension of our team. And sometimes when people aren't there, it does put pressure on what we need to deliver on and just supporting them in terms of just being really clear on what we do need and what we can push back on. Well, it's a good segue to finish up with Rory and the sort of the macro view on the agency and the agency pressure, because often you hear, this is not current clients uh, in the panel, but you do hear that sometimes the pressure gets passed on down the food chain, keeps being passed on. And in the end, the agencies are the explosive end game of feeling it all. What's your take on all of that and managing that sort of broader talent issue, which of course is right on your remit now, Rory, as National (laughs) Managing Director, you've got to deal with all this stuff. It is. Look, I think it's a mass event, the pandemic, the talent shortage, but it's um, felt on an individual level, I would say. So for me, it comes down to individual circumstances and conversations. You know, what's your commute? How important is it going to be for you to go overseas when things reopen? You know, what's your living situation? Do you have kids? Do you have housemates? You know, are people still working from the bedroom or the dining table? We saw a lot of big businesses like you know, Google and the like come out and announce work from anywhere type policies. And I think a lot of those have kind of been scaled back or modified at this point. So I think it's about having policies and so on is one thing, but understanding the individual people in your team and tailoring a solution that's going to work for both them and the business is the biggest thing. And that might depend on the role that that person plays or how required their physical presence is in an office or a boardroom. I mean, the biggest challenge for agencies, I think, is how do you build culture when everyone's remote or a lot of people are remote, but ultimately I think that's built by the people in the business. So the more you get to know them, the more you bring out their strengths, the more you understand where their pressure points are, the better the culture is going to be. And it's going to build trust, which is what you need. And it's the most important thing at the moment. Final question for you, Rory, is in terms of the weighting is going on work-life balance versus learning in job versus the dollars, because we keep hearing it's not about the dollars, it's actually about some other stuff, but then you hear wage escalation and people are jumping for it. So is that weighting shifting at the moment? Where do you see it sort of landing at the moment, work-life, learning, and or the dollars? Good question. I think, (laughs) I think, again, it's individual. And it depends on where that person's at in their career and what opportunity looks like for them. Does opportunity mean more dollars or does it mean more exposure to a different challenge or more development from a training perspective? So I think it's a bit of all of the above at the moment, but I think we'll see it continue to, to kind of shift around. So we're definitely focused on improving the factors we can control. How do we improve the training we've got? How do we offer the value that people need on that individual level? And I think it's going to be an ongoing shift for agencies, certainly, to figure out what the value is of working in agencies is. We've already been dealing with that for the last two years when some of that value for, you know, someone that's early in their career and for a lot of people that aren't early in their career is how is getting to the pub and connection and, you know, social events. And so as that scaled back, we had to look for that value elsewhere and make sure our people you know, know where they sit in the business and the contribution they're making. So we focused a lot on recognition and different initiatives to to ensure that they 
know the value they play in the business and what their individual contribution is. Well, I can say that the pub and the wine bar is important for me. So we should wrap it up on that. Rory Heffernan, Alex McLean, Sarah Bunnell, Asia Carrazzo and Sarah O'Leary. Great conversations. Thanks for joining. Could keep going, but we've got to wind it up. Stay safe and look forward to um, how this all plays out in the end of the year. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.